Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Book of Isaiah. This morning I to speak to you on the, on the title of Coram Deo. In the face or in the present. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the sound of their voices, doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphim flew over to me with a life pole in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this is not your lip, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, the ever hearing, never understanding, the ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people harden, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, Lord? He answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and rapid, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth no leaves come, and they are cut down, so the holy seed will be stumped in the land. And that ends the reading of the word. Can we operate with this one? Or do you guys want me to wear this? They're good with a pulpit mic? Either one. Okay. Let, let me stay with a pulpit mic. Don't mind. This is a passage about first impression. First impressions which we cannot have a second opportunity to change. First aid, first job interview, first time meeting a person. When I was 17, I don't know if I've told you this story, probably I have. Maybe not with the detail I, I'm going to tell you now. 17 years old, it's the summer of 1980. And there's this young lady whom I have been talking to for about three years since I was 14. We met over the phone back in the day. This did not exist. No video, no, not, none of that stuff. It was a black phone tacked to a wall with a cord. You know, her phones were tied to the wall. We were free. 
now phones are free and we are tied to them. Right, Well, That was back in the day when we were free because the phones were tagged to a wall. So we are talking for three years. One day she called. It was a wrong, uh, uh, one of those missed calls. But anyways, we became friends because we became friends. Well, after three years, the final day to meet came. And I remember I rode my bike didn't calculate at 17 that when you ride a bike in the summer, you sweat. I was wearing this shiny, each color, polyester t-shirt, which belonged to my dad. Also, white shorts that belonged to my dad. I was wearing my basketball socks that back in the day went all the way to your knees. And I was wearing these pro kids tennis shoes that also belonged to my dad. My dad was 51 at the time. So I show up after a six-mile bike ride dressed in some 1960s fashion. We meet. It was a brief meeting, and it was very clear to me that that was not a first good impression. My wife's name is not Janet. It's Maria Luisa, so that will tell you that it didn't work out. In the passage I read to you, Isaiah had a first impression with God. And that was quite an impression. Isaiah met God in a very specific context. And today I just want us to consider that text under the five headings that you probably have on your screen. The passage is about the king. The true king, the redeeming king, the sending king giving king, the coming king. And what is the context of the passage? Well, Isaiah tells us in, chapter, in verse 1 of his chapter 6, in his book, his first book, most commentators believe that Isaiah is split into two big books that were not written consecutively. The first 40 chapters, or the first 39 chapters are one book, 40 to 66 are another book, probably written with a pan in between. Uh, and Isaiah tells us that in the year that King Uzziah, or Uzziah, however you want to pronounce it, it's a Hebrew name, so I can get away with my accent and say whatever I want, Uzziah in, in Spanish. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now that is a lot in a phrase, because King Uzziah had reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. We read that fact. But 52 years is a long time. And who was King Uzziah? King Uzziah was a man who feared God. He was a good king. He did a lot of construction. A lot of public works were done in those 52 years. And he also built a lot of weapons. Apparently he was an engineer or liked engineering. And a lot of weapons and buildings and public works, utilities, were constructed during his 52-year reign. But King Uzziah, sadly, didn't finish well. 52 years reigning, that's a long time. Human beings are not made for glory. We can't handle glory. We can't handle honor. You can see that with artists. You can see that with politicians. You can see that with all kinds of people. We're not made for that. 
We're made to worship and honor and give glory to God, not to receive it. So 52 years reigning, it's a long time, and he didn't finish well. He, his heart became proud. He wanted to offer the sacrifice, which only the priests were allowed to offer. So when he, in his pride, decided to offer the burnt offering, God struck him, and he became a leper. He was taken quickly away from the altar, and he died a leper, isolated from the people, banned from God's people, and under God's judgment. So he, he lived well, but he didn't die well. But he reigned 52 years. Imagine if you're 60. That's, that's being old. I know that nowadays people live until 90. But imagine you're 60. That means that for only eight years you have known something different that is not those 52 years of a reign. It happens with Cubans and the Cuban Revolution. Sometimes people get desperate with them when they arrive, especially the second generation. Please understand, that's all they've lived. The revolution in Cuba started in 59. So that's all they know. And Oh, but they are not as diligent and as smart and as working as that first generation. Yeah, they have been 63 years under that system. So they are not the first generation. They can't be. That's all they have known. So for the, and I'm not saying by the way of those who have come late that that is true, but that is the accusation that is made of them. And I want to make the clarification for the record. But the point is, that's all they have known. Well, this was all that Israel had known. 52 years of King Uzziah. When he dies, there's devastation. There's a sense of loss, of, of, of uncertainty, of, of desperation. Our good king died, and he did not even die well. So the people needed direction. Isaiah, who was the prophet, had served only under King Uzziah, because he was not that old at that point to have known anything different. So when Isaiah comes to this place, he too needed direction. He too needed a vision. God gave him a vision of himself. So the prophet understood that he needed too to correct his vision. And what happens? That Isaiah, when this great king dies, has a vision of the true king. You may be in desperation you may be in desolation. You may be in uncertainty. You may not know what happens, right? If you follow too much of social media, perhaps you feel that way. Oh, the country is going to hack in a handbasket. Don't read those things. Don't read those things. These, these are the, the warmongers and the fearmongers. All they want is your clicks and all they want is your attention to sell you ads, to sell you stuff, and that you are just hooked to their ideas and their views. Life is beyond what happens in the United States and in Congress and the past elections and, and what happens in my company and in my life and in my surroundings. There's something that transcends all of this. And Isaiah needed a reminder. And he got it when he sees the Lord highly and exalted sitting on his throne. The God who fills the heavens. The God who is beyond space and time and matter 
and everything. And as Isaiah is facing the reality of this God highly exalted sovereign ruler, he starts to get a glimpse of, of who is the true king, who is really in charge. No system, no power, no congress, no president, no nothing is in charge of something that is under the hand, the eye, the finger, the sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, says the psalmist. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king in Babylon, after he was restored from eating grass as an animal, he says, I know he rules in the heavens and he rules on the earth and he rules over the children of men and no one can tell him what to do. Nobody can twist his arm. Nobody can, can, can break him, can, can beat him in an arm wrestle because he is God and he reigns. And that's what Isaiah saw. But then what is his reaction? He hears the temple shaking. This eerie sound. Smoke filling the temple. Two creatures that in the Bible are described with strange language. Eyes all over. Four faces. Different things that we cannot even understand. Six wings. It's a vision. It's a, it's, a, it's a pictorial vision of something that is celestial. We cannot even imagine it. It comes from a science fiction movie, perhaps. And Isaiah hears them saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that's all they say. They are shouting one to the other in that everlasting chant or that continuous chanting about the holiness of God and the glory of God and the smoke filling the temple and the, and, and the sh columns shaking, the temple shaking. And what is Isaiah's reaction? You guys saw that movie of the child who went to heaven? Forget the name. You haven't seen it. You've never read any of those books of life after life or life after death. There's the light and people see the light and they feel so cozy and so welcomed and so loved and all they feel is loved. Well, I don't know about those experiences because I'm, who am I, right? All I can tell you is that when people saw God in the Bible, they didn't feel any of that stuff. Just saying. So you decide who to believe, or how to filter what you read. When Isaiah, Ezekiel, Manoah, Abraham, Jacob, even the Apostle John in Revelation, when people come face to face with God, they don't feel this warm, cozy feeling of acceptance and being loved and being comfortable. They feel what Isaiah described. Woe is me. Now that's a Hebraism. That's an expression. It's just saying, in Spanish, Dominicans say, Ay mi madre. Why mi madre? It's like you're scared. You shout something. You're just scared to death. And Isaiah is in horror, in terror. And he cries out, Woe is me. I am dead. Jacob said something similar. 
when he fell asleep and saw a ladder that went up to heaven and he saw angels coming up and down. And Jacob said, how fearful, how awesome is this place. It is the door to heaven. It is the house of God. And he was scared. Abraham, when God was making a covenant with him, and he cut the animals in two, and the darkness came upon the sacrifice, and the terror of the night fell upon Abraham. And God was there, walking in the middle of the sacrifice. The fear of God is one of those lost jewels in our generation. We just come and have this cozy feeling that God is our buddy. I have news for you. God is not our buddy. God is God. And the seraphim are proclaiming that. You are holy. 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 You're different. You're other. You cannot be compared to anything or anyone. Your substance, your kind, who you are, what you are, is completely out of our imagination is completely out of what we can think or conceive or imagine or can compare to that's why in the second commandment god forbade images you cannot make any image of me because i am not like anything you can even think of because he's other he is different he's separate oh god is all and god is in all no that's demonic god is god and he made all things and here's isaiah seeing that seeing the omnipresent God whose robes filled the temple because nothing escapes his presence we don't enter the presence of God we are always in the presence of God the incomparable God of Isaiah 40 who takes the oceans as it were in the palm of his hands you're brushing your teeth in the morning and you do like that's the oceans for God as the gazillions and gazillions of gallons of water in the ocean. That's for God. You go on a cruise, you see the vast ocean in the middle of it. God takes that and all the oceans. Of course, it's an imagery. But it's just to point you, <laughs> this is God. You cannot compare Him. He takes the whole earth, all the planets. It's a tiny dust in the scales. It's nothing. The people of the world, oh, we're so important, we're so central. I need to buy this new car to enhance my image. They are like grass, grasshoppers. They're nothing to him. They're like ants. Had an ant farm for Sarah for three months until all the ants died. And I saw the ants in the ant farm. And I said, there's more proximity from me to those ants than from an infinite God to me. Because God is infinite, I am not. The ants are made of the same stuff I am, out of the ground. We have the same basic elements on the periodic table. God doesn't. He's not made of those elements. That's the one whom Isaiah sees. And he falls dead. I am dead. That was his first impression of God. And perhaps I should say, for the sake of illustration and of reminder. That is a great mistake of trying to justify ourselves by our works before God. And I am not talking to those who do not know God, to the unbelievers. I'm talking to you, believers. <laughs> when the Bible says that we have fallen short of God's glory, it means it. 
There's nothing we can do, nothing to add to what Jesus did. And there's nothing we can do to undo what our sin, starting with Adam, has done. We cannot meet the standard of righteousness of this God. When Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Please get out of your mind that it is your effort. Please read it in context. It is the holiness of those who have been bought and sanctified and redeemed with the blood of the Lamb. That is the holiness that pleases God. Not ours. It is Jesus' works. Those are the ones we are dressed with in that great passage in Revelation 19. And then we have to remember that also before our tragedies. Because I am aware that there are people here who are suffering. There are people here whom we pray for because they are struggling with cancer. There are people here who have had difficult marriages. Divorced people. Widows. The other day, and I'm sorry to use my own example, but I use myself as a bad example to help others perhaps. Come back from our trip in the Dominican Republic and first person or I'm going to flip it walk into the house and there's Simba our dog and Simba couldn't be happier I mean he was running up and down greeting us and you could see how happy he was but then I I also met our dear Sarah and Sarah sees me and is like hi Sarah aren't you happy to see me she starts eating Sarah. If we were in the Titanic and we would be dying, who should die? Who should eat? You eat and I die, or I eat and you die? You die. <laughs> That's my daughter. So the dog is happier to see me than my daughter. And of course, all the self-pity comes, right? And all the sadness comes. But God is God. He is God. He ordains all things for his glory. And I'm just a speck of dust. So as Eli says, Yahweh is he. Let, let him do according to his will. He said that when his children were killed in battle. So we have to remember who is it that we are dealing with. He's not our buddy. I have a friend who suffered from depression. He's in the ministry, godly man. Another, we, There's three of us. And the other guy says... He should die because we don't deserve him. And I say, I agree with you. This is a godly man who loves the Lord, who serves him intently, but he suffers from horrible bouts of depression at times. And when he comes to me with those horrible bouts of depression, the first thing I have to do is just strike him. Just remember, you live before God. You don't have any right to question him. I know it hurts, and I know it's painful, but he is God. You're just a servant. Okay, now let's talk about your sadness. We have to remember who is it that we talk to and who is it we deal with. But it doesn't stop in the true king. It goes to the redeemer king. Because Isaiah didn't stop in his woe is me, I am dead. After his cry, God dispatches a celestial being with a burning coal and good news. A burning coal touches his lips. Now, this is a vision. I don't know exactly how to explain it. I don't want to be a literacist. 
But it's a bit, it's a vision. It happened what it happened. I would imagine that if you put a burning cold in your lips, I think it hurts, right? It's going to burn you. So he was burned by the burning coal. But right after the angel said, you are cleansed, your guilt is removed. So there's a burning coal with good news as the picture of the gospel. And we will never understand the soothing of forgiveness until we understand the pain of conviction. Make no mistakes. Coming to Jesus is not coming to a church that it's nice because they preach beautiful and I like that they have a youth program and I like that they do this and do that and yes, I need God in my life and in my marriage. That's not the gospel. The gospel is coming to Jesus under a sense of guilt and conviction of sin because I have fallen short of His standards and of His glory. And I cannot meet His demands. And as you are facing feeling that pain of conviction, then the soothing word comes. There's no sin that has ever been committed by men or women or children that cannot be forgiven. Jesus paid for them, for those who believe. So the soothing comes with a pain and the call was removed from an altar. If there's an altar, there was a sacrifice. If there were ashes in the altar, a life had been given. Here's the gospel illustrated, even in the vision. Isaiah's lips were cleansed. His guilt was atoned for. Because a life was given for that to happen. And here we find also the tension of the gospel. Because the challenge of the gospel is that, yes, we know our sins are forgiven. Yes, we know that Jesus paid it all. Yes, we know that we are acceptable before God. But we struggle, Lord, all our lives, wondering if God really receives us. John, uh, uh, Tony spoke about union with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are received and welcome and always before God. Brother, you don't know what I said to my wife this morning. You don't know what I did either this morning. Union with Christ is our assurance. God doesn't receive us because we're behaving well. God doesn't receive us because we have a good conscience. And yes, we must try to have a good conscience, but God receives us because He sees Christ and not us. It is in Him that we stand justified, forgiven, sanctified. And then, after this Redeemer King, we find the Sending King. Whom shall I send? God deals with Isaiah. God shows his glory to Isaiah, who is in charge, forgives Isaiah, and then says, we have a problem here. We have an issue to deal with. A hardened people that needs a preacher and that needs a prophet. And God is the sender. Let us never forget that. He asks the question, whom shall I send to these hardened people? Very similar to what happens at the end of the Gospel in Matthew, where Jesus sees the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd. And he is grieved because they don't have a shepherd. And he tells the disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And in the next chapter, he calls them. Because God is the sender. God, is, God has the burden and then he calls people to do the job 
for which he sends them for. Because God is also the seeker. I don't have a problem with the concept of seeker sensitive. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I really try, honestly, with all my heart, to preach to the best of my ability in a way that the young people sitting in the back, the children sitting among us, the older, the middle life, everyone at least feels this has to do something with me. I honestly try and I pray about that. I do my best. I don't want to sound like the Puritan sounded because I don't live in the 17th century. I don't want to sound like Spurgeon sounded because I don't live in London in the 19th century. I need to sound like somebody in Miami needs to be sound or or needs to speak. And in that regard, I try to be seeker sensitive. Same with the music. I love the old hymns, but honestly, music is neutral. If the music is not disarray or disorderly, bring the content and sing and sing in such a way that we may worship together. I love some churches where I go to that I hear people singing about redemption. And I tell my wife, that's how you sing when you're forgiven. That's how you have to sound when you know I am forgiven. I am set free. And I am in this world and in this century and I have this Latino blood running through me oh we rejoice no I'm sorry that's not me maybe that was four centuries ago at the same time it's not that we do those things to be attractive to visitors and gain market share because the real seeker is not the person who walks into the church it's God who seeks sinners And we always have to be aware of that. Seeker sensitive. Yeah, be sensitive to the one who seeks for sinners to worship him. That is God. Therefore, do everything around him and for him and to him and through him. That's being seeker sensitive. That's what John 4, 23 and 24 says. The Father seeks worshipers. So be aware of those worshipers whom the Father is seeking. Because also God is the worker. He is the one who works and labors to bring people to himself. And lo and behold, he gives us the honor of being called his fellow laborers, his co-workers. That is an amazing privilege that we have little thought about. Because God could have sent angels, or God just could have opened the heavens and showed himself But he ordained to send people with the same weaknesses of those they are going to be talking to. Like the lepers in Samaria after the siege of the Assyrians. They found all this food and they said, we cannot eat all of this. Let's go back to the city and tell them. And they were the lepers and they said, hey guys, the Assyrians are gone. There's a camp full of stuff there. Go, run. That's exactly what preaching the gospel is. We are fellow workers with a seeking God who wants and looks for people to worship him. So Isaiah, in light of his forgiveness, goes from paralyzing fear to risk-taking boldness. Because before the same God, in the face of God, Coram Deo, where he said, I am dead, I am undone. He says, send me. I'm going to go tell them. 
You need somebody to go and preach to them? I'll go. But Isaiah, they are hardened of heart. They're not going to listen. This land is going to be devastated. And that's the historical context of the passage. The Assyrians will come and take the kingdom of the north. Then the Babylonians will come and take the kingdom of the south. The whole land will be deserted, will be devastated. They will not listen. They are hard of heart. Send me. Send me. I want to go and speak to them about you. Because redemption causes that from unclean lips we go to proclaiming lips. As earthen vessels, yes. We are not the message. We are just messengers. So stop trying. Stop trying being the example. I was talking to someone this morning. I said, well, let me tell you what I do with people. I teach through my bad examples. I'm not interested in telling you what I've done well. I think I've done some things well, and, I, and I'm not always clear what are they. Because in my standards, I think they are well done, but somebody else says, no, they're not. And then I think I did something wrong, and somebody says, no, 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 that was good. Okay. Since I don't know too well, but I'm aware of the ones that are not right, then I like to tell people about my bad examples. Because they point to the redeeming quality of God who takes even our bad and turns it into good. And I was doing that with someone this morning. We're just the messengers. So go tell them. Tell them about the God who forgives, who seeks, who cleanses. And then this passage is about the king who came. And this is my favorite part of the text. Because there's a story behind the story. In the Gospel of John in chapter 12, we are giving the beginning of Jesus' last week of ministry. It's fascinating that John takes half of his Gospel to describe the last week in Jesus' ministry. And in chapter 12, it starts with Mary anointing him for his burial. And then Jesus facing Judas' betrayal. Satan already having put in Judas to betray him. And then this change in Jesus' face that John seems to record or to capture as he knows this is the last week of his ministry. This is where the Passover is coming and he is going to the cross. And Jesus says these words in John, 20, in John 12. Verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. The word troubled is exactly the same word in John 14.1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be stirred up. Jesus says, my soul. He told the disciples, don't be troubled. You don't be troubled. I'm in charge. But he said, I am troubled. That is fascinating about our Savior taking shots for us. I don't want you to be troubled, but I am. My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said, 
that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And then when I am lifted up from the earth, it's a picture of the cross, and will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Verse 37. Though he had done many sights before them, they still did not believe him. Now I want you to connect with that last passage or that last portion in Isaiah 6. That Isaiah is being sent to a people that is hardened of heart. That hearing will not listen. Seeing will not observe. Because their heart had become calloused. Picture that in Isaiah. And keep reading John 12 with me. Verse 38. So that the word that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is from Isaiah 6. Lord who has believed what he heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, verse 40, this is it. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. John writes editorially, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? God. And in John 12? Jesus. The God before whom Isaiah stood in awe and wondered and felt terrorized left his father's throne above and came down. We celebrate in Christmas the birth of Jesus, that he came from heaven. And yes, it was a pagan celebration that the Christian church adopted, and now we make it about Jesus, and it's beautiful, and I love it, and I love Christmas. And I have my Christmas tree too, and I don't worship the Babylons because I have a Christmas tree. I'm not into that stuff. If you are, I respect it, but I am not. Now, Christmas is not about the baby Jesus. Christmas is about that God left his throne. He left his Father's throne above. So infinite. So great his love. Humbled himself to take our place. Did not regard equality with God something to grasp. But came to become a servant, obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. So Jesus came and the cross was the altar where he left, as it were, the ashes of his own body crushed for our sins. The cross was the altar where his life was exchanged for ours. And because God came, now we go and proclaim. Let me say this, and I don't want to sound like Steve Brown says, the, um, the rooster that leaves the 
chicken where he lives, right, and goes into a into an ostrich ostrich farm, and then comes back and says, "Well, ladies, I want to tell you that I was at an ostrich farm and I saw these huge eggs, and I think we should do something similar." No, I don't want to sound like that, but I need to say this in love. I was visiting a church, the dedication of a church that grew in 1992 from 15 people. Three months later, they went down to seven because half of the church left. <laughs> and now they have a building place that sits more than 2,000 or around 2,000. What happened? Well, they are very evangelistic. They are intentionally evangelistic. They go out and proclaim. And perhaps we should consider that our forgiveness, the grace we have received, the love with which we have bestowed, been bestowed in Christ, is not just to be contemplative, but it's to go out there and share it and proclaim it. We don't have to grow. We don't have to become larger. But at least we have to be planters and spreaders of the seed. If we have seen the vision of the majesty of God, if we have been burned in our lips with a scorching coal, and if we have felt the soothing of forgiveness, well, what else can we do but go and proclaim what great things God has done with us? And I encourage you, beloved, to move from the contemplative, self-centered life that for the most part we live, centered in our jobs, and our activities, our families, our lives, our things, to the life of seeking and seizing opportunities to speak of the wonders of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Being reformed should make us be more evangelistic than anyone else because being reformed just tells us that we have guaranteed success. God will call his own. God will gather his chicken, his, his, his chickens as a, as a hen gathers theirs. In the end, a multitude that no person can count will be gathered around the throne. And I don't have to worry about how many of them I brought. God will bring them all. But I would be honored if I am given the chance at least to get my little horn and proclaim, come to the waters and drink, come to the feast and eat. We have a Savior, we have a God who came, who saves, who redeems. May the Lord help us. Father, take your word and use it according to your purposes and be magnified in our hearts, be glorified in what we do and help us to share the good news that we have been made partakers of. Thank you. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for coming down from your throne to rescue the likes of us. Be glorified. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.